0: Can I help you is an offer of assistance. You hear the phrase at a restaurant. Welcome to McDonald's. Can I help you? (laughs) You use the phrase when helping a neighbor move or a stranger cross the street. Can I help you? Sometimes you might be mistaken in whether the person actually needs the help. It's an old episode of Seinfeld where he sees a woman on the bus with a bunch of groceries who he assumes to be pregnant is like, can I help you? And helps her, you know, goes multiple stops out of his way and ends up walking to her front door and then asks her finally, uh, so when's the baby due? And she looks offended. I'm not pregnant. (laughs) She didn't actually need the help. Or sometimes the gesture can be misunderstood like that person who falls for their barista. And they were so nice to me and they offered to help me. They made me coffee and they gave it to me and they asked how my day was going and you know, they wished me a good day and man, I think this might be the one. You're like, dude, that's, that's their job, you know? <laughs> now here's something I want us to pay attention to today. The tone can change the meaning of the phrase. So if someone is being nosy and they're getting all in your business, you might find yourself saying, excuse me, can I help you? you know, right? AKA, leave me alone. I don't know if you've ever been to one of those theme restaurants where they kind of intentionally flip it and are rude on purpose. They're just kind of, what do you want? Can I help you? you know? Or consider the tone of a parent pleading with their child in the throes of addiction. Like, Please, let me help you. Suggest this phrase can be used with three different tones as an offer of assistance or a kind of get out of my business or a pleading We're gonna see today that Jesus uses all three tones, asking a couple different audiences, a couple different people, can I help you? We're in John five, if you have your Bible, you wanna turn there uh, in the series that we're in in John. Uh, So in John five, this is a famous story about the healing of the paralyzed man. And Jesus asked the man, can I help you essentially? He asks this not only to this man, however, but to others who are around. And as we're going to discover, ultimately in the gospel, the core question that Jesus asks you and I is not, are you good enough to get into my kingdom? But it is rather, will you let me heal you? The title for the message today is, can I help you? So if somebody would say, yes, please, <laughs> and supersize it. <laughs> All right, let's jump in on uh, John 5, verse 1. We read, After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. You notice John usually tells us which feast. He doesn't here, and that's intentional because the timing of this event is actually going to be important, but he's saving the punchline, so to speak, for a little later in the passage. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, in Aramaic or in Hebrew called Bethesda take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. The first thing we see here is that Jesus goes to the back of the line to heal a man who's been paralyzed for 38 years. 38 years. Jesus goes to Jerusalem, which is the capital. And while Jesus is in the big city, hitting the town, first place he goes, he doesn't go to Hollywood with the red carpet and the bright lights and the rich and famous. No, he goes to the hospital, backstage with the sick and the hurting. John tells us the location here is the sheep. Gate. And as we've seen in this series, every detail John includes is significant. I believe the picture we should see here is that Jesus is the good shepherd coming through the sheep gate. And the picture is like the, the people here are like sheep around the pool. And there's one sheep who's unable to get to the pool. But Jesus has arrived as the good shepherd. He walks through the sheep gate and he's come to bind up the broken Jesus goes to a guy who's been there for 38 years. Dr. Dwight Peterson is a paraplegic theologian and he says this man was probably paraplegic. And we should imagine back then uh, that the scene was probably one where there was a smell. This man was unable to carry or wash himself without help. And that we should imagine that there are probably feces uh, with the mat and all over the years, the, the smell, the stench, this mat. And no one likely wants to be around him. It's been 38 years, longer than Jesus has been alive, possibly longer than anyone else here at this scene, at this location. And the man says there is a competition going on. He's not able to get to the water at the right time uh, because he needs help and he's in the back. So Jesus comes and he goes to the back of the line. I wonder if, any of us today feel at the back of the line. Like the sense that there are exciting things happening out there somewhere and we'd love to go out and be a part of them, except I feel in the shadows, stuck, immovable, alone, isolated. Maybe life feels like a competition in the rat race and I just can't get ahead. Can't get to where I feel like I need to be where the action is. Well, if that's you, there's good news today that when Jesus comes to town, he comes to the back of the line. Jesus asks him, essentially, Can I help you? Like, do you want to be healed? Now, first glance, that's a strange question. Like, of course, the dude wants to be healed. Like, why not? Yet, Jesus' question is significant. We have one reason that Jesus asks him this is that Jesus' question gives him agency. Think about it all his life. He's probably been seen as someone who has no voice, who is seen only as needy, the nameless beggar on the side of the street. And yet, as Jesus approaches him, he sees him not only as needy and dependent, with Jesus, he's given a voice, he has something to bring to the table. Jesus gives him the dignity of agency. I used to work in Vietnam and spent a lot of time in Hanoi. And one of my favorite things in Hanoi was these nine print shops that had been started and run by people with disabilities, mostly especially youth in the area. And it was an initiative that our church had helped sponsor and support, uh, loans to get these businesses up off the ground. But as I got to know uh, some of the people who, uh, the youth who started and ran these print shops, you think of like a FedEx or a Kinko's, and they would talk about how before the initiative, they often felt like they were in the shadows of society. They said in their culture, there was a lot of shame and stigma around having a disability. And so families often maybe felt embarrassed or didn't know what to do. And so when company was over, they would have to stay in the back room and all. But then uh, with this, suddenly now they were seen as not only needing dependent, but as having a contribution to make, something to bring to the table. Someone laughed at the irony of it. Now they they sat with the whole family at the family table and they actually had like the seat of honor because they actually made more income than mom and dad together, right? And they talked about the dignity though and the bigger picture that it brought that they were given agency. Jesus gives this man agency, voice, dignity. I remember one time I brought the bulletins for our church back from one of these print shops. I had them print them for our church service and the the, uh, plane flew in about 7, 8 a.m. It was almost time, so I kind of rushed over and I had them print them, but I forgot to have them cut them. And so so I got to the church. I'm like, oh man, I got to cut these bulletins. So I ran in. I got like the big cutter and but A, I was in a rush. B, I'm clumsy. My family will tell you I'm a klutz, right? And so I cut loads of them like really poorly, kind of at a diagonal slash. And so lots of people walking to church that day got their bulletins. and like, whoa, this is, I'm missing half the text. So then I got up to explain that these had been cut at the print shop that we partnered with run by people with disabilities in Hanoi. And I think people generally kind of felt like, well, okay, they they tried. They tried their best. But... (laughs) I had to confess and own. It wasn't, it was me. Like I, I'm the guy who can't cut. They did a way better job than I did. And there is a power that comes in the gospel where Jesus takes those who are seen as having no voice and gives them voice. Jesus gives this man the disability, agency, voice, dignity. If you are a person here this morning with a disability, you need to know that we need you. Like our church family is not whole without you. You are not just a recipient, but a participant. You have food to bring to the potluck, so to speak, right? a voice to share at the table. I want to take a moment and recognize Melissa Stone. For those of you who know who Melissa Stone is, she runs the special needs ministry. Melissa Stone runs the special needs ministry here and we're just one of many families who've been tremendously helped because she sees our, our children, our community who might have some special needs, not only for the needs they have, but the unique abilities and the gifts they bring to our community and the voice they share and that uh, that our children, all of them, that they're a helper and they're a part of our church family. That is a gospel vision. Okay, well, the man couldn't carry himself to the help, so the help came to him. Jesus not only gives him dignity, he gives him something more. He brings the help to him. See, the man gives Jesus his strategy. He's like, here's how it works. Like the angel comes down with a little coffee stir stick and stirs up the waters. And that's when you want to get in. And it's kind of like the jacuzzi where, you know, the water's flat, but somebody's got to go push the button. And so we're waiting for God to push the button so I can get in and get the healing. Only there's a competition to get there first. And I'm in the back of the line and I need help. I can't get there. No one will help me. It's been 38 years and I cannot get to the front. And in Jesus, he finds the help has come to him. Jesus is like an in and out waiter here or host, right? If you've been in In-N-Out when like the line's long forever, There's cars all the way down the block and you're like, oh man, I'm never gonna get to dinner. And so you're, you're waiting. And if you're like me, when I first moved here, I didn't have in and out back home. So when I first moved here, I'm like, oh man, this is gonna be forever. And so you're kind of like looking at your phone and checked out and pretty soon there's a little rap on the window and you're like, shh, excuse me, can I help you? you know? And they're like, no, can I help you? You. And in and out, the waiters actually come to your car. Like they come out to take your order. And that is fascinating to me. But (laughs) in the gospel, it's like that, only it's something more. It's like, not only are you in line, but you now have a flat tire and you're out of gas and there's no way you're gonna be able to get there. And Jesus comes out and he's not only like, hey, I'll take your order. I'll actually bring the order out to you and I'll fill up your tires and fill up your gas to help you get on your way. And Jesus The help has come to us. In the gospel, we could never get to the help. We were stuck on our own. We were falling behind in the competition and the rat race. There was no way for us to get to where we needed to go. The help that we needed was too far away. And yet God has come in Christ to bring the help to us, to bring his salvation, his healing, his wholeness, not only for our body, but for our soul, for all of who we are. Looked at a few weeks ago, whether now or in the not yet, the coming of his resurrection kingdom, Jesus has come to heal and make us whole. Jesus finds the man at the back of the line. He says to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Let's continue in verse nine in the second half. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Well, Jesus picks a fight. Here. We find that he's out to pick a fight with the religious leaders. I love this. This is feisty Jesus, right? Like Jesus does this miracle on the Sabbath. He works on the Sabbath. He does this healing on the Sabbath. And this is intentional timing for him. He is poking the bear, he is provoking a confrontation on purpose. The religious leaders uh, come to Jesus and they're nosy, kind of getting in his business. And I see Jesus kind of going, excuse me, can I help you? you know, like he's not phased by their intrusion. And yet Jesus is not the only one who works on the Sabbath doing the miracle. He also calls the man to work, to pick up his mat and to walk. He orders the guy to kind of pick up his mat and carry it around. And the religious leaders see this guy and I envision them saying like, hey, it's the Sabbath, you're supposed to be resting. And he'd be like, dude, I've been resting for 38 years. Like, <laughs> I'm ready to get up and move. (laughs) This raises a question, though. Why does Jesus heal on the Sabbath? Why does he do it? There are some flimsy answers that we'll sometimes hear that I think can kind of miss the point. So let's address a few of those. Sometimes I think you'll hear that this is really about legalism versus compassion. But Jesus is not saying here, you guys are legalistic and I'm compassionate. The Jewish leaders weren't cold-hearted, per se, the law of the day goes, you know, if there was a life threatening emergency, it was fine to help someone out. Even an animal, a person, whatever, you help someone out if it was life threatening. But if it wasn't life threatening, if it wasn't an emergency, just wait till the next day. Jesus, you could have just waited a day, or you could have done it the day before. He's intentionally doing it on the Sabbath for some reason. The Jewish leaders were also not just adding extra stuff to the Old Testament law. Jeremiah 17, 21, God tells his people, be careful not to carry a load on the Sabbath day or bring it through the gates of Jerusalem. Nehemiah 13, the people are warned because they are carrying things around in Jerusalem, in the temple on the Sabbath. Numbers 15, dude gets stoned for carrying sticks on the Sabbath. Law's just been given, he's made an example of. And so it was biblical for the Israelites to not work on the Sabbath. Uh, God didn't want his people working, uh, not just like picking up anything, but carrying stuff around, work related, right? Also here, Jesus doesn't pretend that he's not working. Jesus doesn't say something like, oh, what, this? Like, this is just child's play, this ain't work, right? Like, no, he actually says, my father is working, so so am I comes John and says, I'm working on the Sabbath because my father is working on the Sabbath. It's like I'm working, I'm doing the work. Jesus is also though, I believe that he is not contradicting the Sabbath. He holds the Old Testament in the highest regard. You're reading through the gospels. Jesus is constantly saying things like, it is written, it is written, it is written. Have you not read? Have you not read? Have you not read? I have come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. So what is going on here? Why does Jesus heal on Sabbath? I'll suggest to you this. Jesus is making a claim to his unique identity. Jesus is making a claim to his unique identity. He goes on to explain himself saying, I am the son of the father. And because the father is always working, I'm allowed to work too because I have a unique relationship with my father. The sermon that follows that we're going to read here in a minute, the rest of the passage, Jesus just starts going on about how, all about the father and how the father is at work through the son, working through him in a unique and powerful way. And this is why they persecute him. Not just because he's working on the Sabbath, but even more so, John tells us here in verse 18, because he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus is making a claim to his unique identity. Now, in the Old Testament, unique offices were exempt from Sabbath restrictions. So the priests were allowed to work on the Sabbath, like a pastor working on Sundays kind of thing, right? Uh, King David was allowed to perform certain priestly responsibilities because of his office as king. And in the other Gospels, when Jesus is explaining, uh, similar, why he's healing on the Sabbath, he points to these examples, like these, and ultimately to say that he is Lord of the Sabbath his unique identity and title and role. The reality is if someone else was doing these things, they would be breaking the Sabbath, but Jesus has a unique 24-7 all-access pass into all of creation. You can imagine this like a secure wing at a company where you're kind of, If you or I, you know, we kind of walk up and we're like trying to get back there and the security guards are there and like, hey, no, I'm sorry, you're not allowed back here. And you're like, okay, you know. Then if the president of the company comes and shows his ID badge, you're like, oh, okay, you're all good, go on. Jesus has the 24-7 all access path into all of creation. It's almost like the religious leaders see this man walking it'd be like seeing some guy flying around, up overhead. And if for me, I'd be like, dude, how are you flying? You know? But the religious leaders are like, do you have an FAA permit for that? You know? And what Jesus is saying is like, hey, I'm the head of the FAA, right? I have the authority to do this. And I wonder, are there areas of your life that you think Jesus shouldn't have access to? Things that you hold sacred that you go, hey, well, this is kind of my territory. Because reality is God has given Jesus, the father has given his son, a 24-7 all-access pass to get into all your business, (laughs) anytime, day or night. But the good news of the gospel is that his goal in doing so is to bring you a true and eternal rest. Jesus is out to bring us a true and eternal rest. Here's what I mean. Jesus here is fulfilling the Sabbath. We've not contradicting it. But what the Sabbath was, the Sabbath was always looking forward, forward pointing to new creation. So every seven days there was the Sabbath day to rest and that day looked forward to the Sabbath year. So every seven years there's a Sabbath year that was a bigger rest for the people. And then every, that pointed forward to the Jubilee every 49 years or seven times seven. And on that Jubilee Sabbath year, 49 years, that was when debts were forgiven and the land was healed and restored. So in the average person's lifetime, You probably only lived through one Jubilee, right? But there's a sense that the whole uh, cycles and Sabbath cycles and seasons are pointing forward to the Jubilee, and that itself is pointing forward to God's ultimate new creation, where He would come and deaths would be forgiven, sin would be atoned for, the land would be healed and restored, and Jesus is coming to bring resurrection and new creation for His world. He has come to fulfill the Sabbath. And what he has just done for this man is a picture of what he has come to do for humanity to bring forth this true and eternal rest. Jesus has come to raise the dead and restore creation and the rest he has come to bring, it's deeper than just taking a nap, right? Like Jesus' work is to bring you a true, eternal, a deep rest. And it makes me wonder, where are you tired today? Like not just sleepy, but tired. Feeling like that exhaustion in your bones. Maybe it's from all the people around you who need things from you and you just feel like you're never gonna be enough to be able to meet the needs and fulfill it. It could be that, man, people who are, man, just constantly feel like you have to explain yourself to the same people over and over again and they still are just, don't get it. They don't get you. Or it could be this 24-7 news cycle right now with election drama. It just feels like, man, everything just feels like it's constantly in flames. And I don't know how many of you, like me this week, are just going, man, I just feel exhausted, right? You feel exhausted. The good news of the gospel is that Christ has come to bring you a true and eternal rest. Jesus is about to show us that this man healed on the Sabbath is a picture of what he's come to do for all creation. So let's continue in verse 19. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, mark that phrase, truly, truly, I say to you. It's gonna show up a couple times here. Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing and greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will as he has just done with this paralyzed man. For the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Like the religious leaders are not honoring him. Now, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, like this man who heard his word and rose up into fullness of life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. They will get up. They will rise. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. We find here that Jesus is asking them, and ultimately even Jesus is asking us, can I help you? He says that what he has just done with this man is a picture of what he has come to do for humanity and for creation. Only now he asks, can I help you? With more of the tone of a parent pleading with their child. Let me help you. Jesus' sermon here is structured by that phrase, truly, truly. Shows up three times and structures this passage, this part of the passage here. And the first time it sets up this, the first truly, truly. It's about how the Son raises the dead and gives life, similar to how He's just raised this man up from his mat and given him fullness of life. And he says He's able to do this because the Father shares all He has with the Son and loves the Son and is at work through the Son to restore and redeem the world. The second, truly, truly, says about whoever hears His word and believes has eternal life. Like this paralyzed man heard Jesus's word and received and was able to step up into. This life, He heard Christ's words spoken, he trusted or believed, and he got up. The third truly, truly sets up how the hour is coming and is now here when the dead will be raised by the son's voice. All it takes is the voice of Christ the son, just like that's all it took here with this man for the dead to rise into the resurrection of life or of judgment. Jesus is saying what he has just done with this man is a picture of the coming resurrection where the voice of the son will raise us up from our graves where we are currently would be immobile and cannot move and that we can either trust in Christ and enter into union with him in life or we can reject and resist him and rise into resurrection of judgment. So I'll explain why Jesus earlier told the man, hey, sin no more, so something worse, doesn't happen to you he's not saying there that if you have a disability or a physical condition it's necessarily the result of sin john goes on later in in john 9 Jesus goes on to say like that's not the case um but what he is doing is it's it's pointing forward he's going man whatever physical condition you or i might have that's nothing compared to the judgment that he's warning of if we resist the reconciling and redemptive work of god in christ As we stand before Christ, his question is not, are you good enough to get into my kingdom? It is rather, will you let me heal you? Can I help you? So this man, the early church, interestingly, saw this man as a picture of Israel under the curse of the law. So we've been seeing in this series, every detail in John is significant, and a couple details are worth noting here. They saw how it says he had been there 38 years. That 38 years echoes Deuteronomy 2.14, where Israel had been in the wilderness for 38 years wanting to get into the promised land, but they couldn't. They were like this paralyzed man, unable to get out from under their condition in sin, and God was waiting for that generation to die off that had been in rebellion. They were unable to enter into the promised land. John also says there are five colonnades or porches surrounding this area. The early church saw this as the five books of the law or of Moses, who Jesus is about to say in the end of this John 5 passage, Moses being the one who will accuse those who have rejected him. Augustine, the, earlier church, the early church father, commented how this group of people Uh, around the pool, they were shut in by the five books of Moses. It was a picture of Israel who was shut in by the five books of Moses as by five porches. But those books brought forth the sick, not healed them. For the law convicted, not acquitted sinners. That's similar to our condition where the law of God, it exposes and reveals our condition and even our paralysis to be able to fix it or save ourselves or do anything to, to deal with it on our own. And yet the water being stirred by the angel was a picture of God coming to stir by his spirit, his wind, his presence, his heavenly presence, to part the waters of the Jordan and bring his people out of the wilderness, into the promised land, into new creation, into new life. And now the church those waters have become the waters of baptism. And early Christian art uh, often pictured this man coming up out of the waters of the baptism, carrying his mat on his back that he was now carrying the mat that had carried him. That in Christ, there is a freedom from our enslavement to sin, our conviction under the law that comes. As Jesus says, can I help you? Do you want to be healed? This man is a picture of us, right? you may think, man, I'm, I'm doing fine. I got my fantasy football and my 401k and my, some friends, comfy house, whatever. But the gospel says, no. The reality is like apart from Christ, we are like this man. We are stuck, unable to move, paralyzed, in our condition. You are unable to get to the promised land, to get to new creation on your own. Outside of grace. It's like we can see the promised land. We can see those waters and the new creation on the other side, but we cannot get there by ourselves. We are on the brink of death, surrounded by the smell of the grave, where we will all end up immobile, immovable, and alone, at the back of the line. But then Jesus, he walks towards you, and he reaches out his hand, and he says, do you want to be heal. Can I help you? The invitation of the gospel is that God has come to us to heal us and to restore us. Jesus says, I've come to bring you a true and eternal rest. And as I've been reflecting on this this week, I think the question I have for us this morning is, why would you say no? Like, why would you say no? There are three potential reasons I I could think of. One reason we might say no is because of an ideology. Maybe an ideology we're clinging to. Like if Jesus came to this man in the 21st century in my hometown of Portland, I could see him come to this man and the guy being like, excuse me, Jesus, it's not that my legs don't work right, it's that they just work differently. So take your ableist, bipedal normativity out of here and let me just do it alone, right? And we're very ideological in Portland, right? And, you know, it sounds ridiculous, but the reality is how often does Jesus come to us and go, hey, can I heal you of your porn addiction? We just go, hey, well, Jesus, that's, that's just, that's not wrong. It's just, this is how I express my sexuality differently. Something differently. Jesus going, will you let me into your bitterness? We can find ourselves going, well, man, Jesus, if you knew the things that they've done to me, let me pull out the laundry list and show you why I have every right to be. Jesus saying, Can I heal of you of your obsession with image? Find ourselves going, but man, God, how how else are people gonna, man, how am I gonna get sense that I'm affirmed and liked and valued and loved? Or Jesus going, hey, will you let me into your performance and your workaholism? we find ourselves clinging to this ideology that goes, man, God, it's a dog-eat-dog world and everybody's trying to get ahead and that's just my only way to keep up or we're gonna be left behind. We could say no because we are clinging to our ideology. Another reason we could say no is if we are clinging to uh, an identity at times. Here's what I mean by that. I wonder what it was like for this guy 38 years. I could see him the first 10 years going with be in hope. You know, the first 10 years going, man, I'm gonna get to that water. I'm gonna get healed. It's gonna, everything's gonna change. But I could see maybe the second 10 years where it turned to anger, like anger at the others who were competing and not letting him get there. Anger at God. Like, why could you let this happen and be this way? See the third decade becoming one of despair. I'm just going, God, there's just, man, this is just the way it is. I just gotta learn to deal with it, accept it. Then the fourth decade becoming one of resolve, of things settling in, saying, This is just who I am. And he would not be alone in this. It's a reality that we can find our identity in our struggle. This is a big one today where victimhood has often become a new form of power, where if I can identify some struggle I've been to, I can lift up and elevate my voice and I can shut yours down. So we have voices on all sides of the spectrum competing for who's been the most mistreated. And leveraging your identity as something this way or that way can actually become a way of building a platform. And that can be a hard drug to let go of. We can find our identity in the struggle. And of course, the things that have been done to us are significant and deserve to be addressed. But the gospel comes and says, you are not what's been done to you. You are not your condition. And Jesus comes inviting us into a union with him that brings us a deeper identity at the core of who we are as sons and daughters of God. Okay, well, a third and kind of final reason for this morning, one of the reasons we might say no, and ideology, and identity, or the third, and this is maybe the biggest, is a fear of the unknown. The so reality for this man is being a beggar was a profession. It was a, also it was a way that you earned money, you earned your livelihood in a beggar. And after 38 years, this is all that he has known. It makes me wonder if it was scary take Jesus' hand, to trust him, and to step into the unknown. Jesus is inviting him to give up a life that he's known for 38 years, nearly four decades. And I wonder if that was scary. Because you and I, we can prefer the certainty of misery to the misery of uncertainty. We can find ourselves going, man, God, it's just been this way for so long that I can't imagine anything different. And I'm not willing to let you stoke my imagination that things could be different. My marriage is just always going to be this hard this way. What my dad did to me is just always going to have that impact, at the core of who I am. It's just the lot I've been given. When Jesus shows up, our condition can get so closely attached to our identity, our ideology your ideology, and it can provoke a fear of the unknown. As Jesus comes, the invitation is to trust. When Jesus asks, can I help you? The invitation is to trust him, to trust him more than your ideology, more than anything else competing for your identity, more than your fear of the unknown, to trust him. If we want to get to the promised land, we've got to take his word, trust him, to pick us up and raise us up to bring us there himself. And it helps to know and trust in Jesus that his goal is to make you whole. The goal of healing is wholeness. The function of a healthy eye is to see, of a healthy ear is to hear, of healthy legs are to walk. And on a deeper spiritual level, the function of a healthy soul is to be sin-free in order to experience the life and union with God forever. Healed and whole. And so this morning, as we come to communion, as we come to the bread and the wine, we are invited to find this man is a picture of us. You and I stuck on our own, unable to get ourselves to the new creation, but in Christ, the help has come to us. Jesus has come to find you at the back of the line in the depths of your condition and to invite you into a true and eternal rest. So as we take the, Bread and the wine, if you're a follower of Jesus, this is for you. And let's start with the bread, a sign of Christ's body broken for us in order that he might heal and make our bodies and our souls, our whole lives whole in the resurrection kingdom to come. Let's receive the bread. Now let's take the wine, a sign of Christ's blood shed for us. In order that he might raise us into true and eternal life, you may receive the wine. Would you join me in prayer?